when I'd go to these poetry readings, I felt terrified. And I thought, who would really want to listen to what I have to say? You know, I just didn't have any confidence in myself. Mm-hmm. And it felt like I was naked <laughs> standing in front of an <laughs> oh, audience, yeah. you know. That really scared me. But I knew I had to keep doing it because I liked writing. And I had seen that this performance of poetry or stories is part of the writing process. And I continued to do that. Hello, welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Christy Ashwanden. And I'm Rosemary Wettola Tromer. And this is a podcast on creative process. And in honor of National Poetry Month, we have an extra special treat today. We have an interview with the current Navajo Nation Poet Laureate, Laura Tohi. And I got to meet her last fall. We were together in Page, Arizona, doing a storytelling festival. Mm-hmm. And when I met her, well, she unfortunately, we didn't get to hang out a lot because she was at the time was judging some contest where she had to read 50 manuscripts in a very short period of time. Oh my gosh, that sounds kind of horrible, actually. <laughs> but we ended up, you know, having these kind of lovely, lovely evenings where, mm-hmm. where the, there were four, four of us, five of us who were hanging out and just getting to talk. And, and I got to learn something about what it was like to grow up on the reservation and how how she went from having no no exposure or very little exposure to literature especially and nothing in terms of native literature she had never mm-hmm. heard another writer who in any way was speaking to her experience um so i was so moved by that and mm-hmm. I'm I'm so looking forward to this conversation with her. Oh, I can't wait to meet her. I remember when you met her and you were you were so thrilled and couldn't stop talking about how wonderful she is. Well, let me tell you about her. Laura Tohi is Diné and the current Navajo Nation Poet Laureate. She is Sleepy Rock People Clan and Born for the Bitter Water People Clan. She published three books of poetry, an anthology of Native women's writing, and an oral history on the Navajo Code Talkers. Her librettos, Enemy Slayer, a Navajo Oratorio, and Nahastzan in the Glittering World. And those were both performed in Arizona and France, respectively. Among her awards are the 2020 Academy of American Poetry Fellowship, the 2019 American Indian Festival of Writers Award, and twice she's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. She is Professor Emerita with distinction from Arizona State University. Let's find Laura. Let's bring her on. And hello, Laura. Welcome to Emerging Form. Hi, Rosemary. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you, too, Christy. We're so happy you're here. So we're excited to have you, especially because it's it's been almost, well, it's going on a year, I suppose, since I met you. And I'm still thinking, Laura, about some of the things that you said when I first met you, especially you said a little bit about what it was like growing up without ever reading any stories or poems from Native writers. And I thought maybe we could just start there. Um, let us hear just a little bit of what it was like, your relationship to reading when you were growing up. Yeah, when I grew up, I was living in this little community on the Navajo Nation homeland called Crystal, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, we did not have television newspapers. The little community that I lived in was pretty isolated. And um, 
I think it was actually good for me hmm. to grow up there. I loved that little place. It was beautiful. It was at the base of a of the Chushkai Mountains. And I think I grew up mostly listening a lot to things because hmm. we had a radio mm-hmm. and we didn't have a lot of things to watch like television, you know, like there is today. Because for one thing, we couldn't get television in that little yeah. community. There was no antenna or something like that. Uh-huh. So my brothers and I, I grew up with uh, five brothers. We were playmates and we had to be creative in our entertainment. So we used to hike up to the hills behind the house. Sometimes we'd go fishing or go to the lake and play in the water. And then sometimes my mother would take us all to Gallup, which is about an hour and a half drive. And we'd go see a movie or do our shopping. Uh And it was actually during those drives to Gallup or when we were driving over the mountain to my grandmother or, or when we were going to visit relatives, my mother used to turn off the radio and she would tell us these stories. And I just remember that one story about how these two children who were once human were turned into prairie dogs hmm. because their parents neglected them. That story stayed with me growing up. And when I got to college, that was the first story I ever wrote. I didn't write poetry because I didn't know what poetry was, first of all. Hmm. And the school that I went to was right there at Crystal. And then I went to a public school. And then later on, I went to the Indian school in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And I was never exposed to any writing written by Native writers, even though there was a few um, out there. But it wasn't until I got to college when I took a literature class with a really good professor, uh, Gerald Hobson. He introduced the class to some of the work of a Native poet, and I can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there was two Native poets going to school or were working at the University of New Mexico, where I was a student. One of them was Simon Ortiz. The other one was Joy Harjo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you're going to have two poets, those are heck of a two poets to have. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I just want to take a step back, though, and just to express my profound sadness that, you know, here you were going to an Indian school and, you know, we, I think we, we know the history of those, but, you know, to be able to, to go to such a place and never be exposed to literature from your own culture is just, just terrible and and sad. Yeah, it is. And I, one of the reasons is because poets and writers were not being published Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it is today. Today, there's lots of poets and a lot of fiction writers and essayists and so forth. So we didn't have that quantity of writers that there are today. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the university, um, I went to Simon Ortiz poetry reading, mm-hmm. and it really profoundly affected me because he was writing about things from his own community, people that he knew, his family, about land. And all of that I could relate to. Mm-hmm. But there was no one really actually talking about that in or publishing that. And that's what I really feel like was an erasure of a, an invisibility 
um, that I grew up with. Oh, yeah. And Joy Harjo, at the time, we were both students at the university, and she mm-hmm. um, was invited to one of my classes. And she was actually writing and getting her early work published a little bit. She came to my class, and I was just astounded by what she was writing about because I felt like she's writing about what I know. You know, here's mm-hmm. a Native American woman writing about things that I know about. And I think those two and Rudy Anaya, who was Mm -hmm. very instrumental in helping me get started to gain some confidence in my own writing. They helped me go through this door that I was afraid to go through. And it was just an epiphany for me because I think that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I know I did because when I was going to the school, I read a lot of Dick and Jane books. Uh-huh. Those were not about me. There was about a white family in a Midwestern yeah. community or somewhere. And they were very easy reading. So I learned how to read very quickly and then teach some of my classmates who couldn't speak English very well or even at all mm-hmm. at that time. And when I was growing up, I liked to read because, like I said, that we didn't have much entertainment. Fortunately, mm-hmm. my mother saw that in me and she took me to the Gallup Public Library and I she got me a library card oh. and I could go there and check out, you know, a bag of books at a time. So I read lots of uh, Madeline uh-huh. and fairy tales. And mm-hmm. eventually when I got better at reading Nancy Drew and some of those kinds of books. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to do when I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. And I remember we'd be leaving Crystal to go to Gallup. And I would think about, you know, being a writer, but I didn't know anything about that because there was no one around me. Yeah. But I have to say, though, there were lots and lots of storytellers around me. Right. Which I didn't really see as an oral kind of literature. Mm -hmm. I just thought, you know. Everyone's just telling stories about what happened that day or what happened a long time ago. Uh-huh. But it never registered in my mind that this is oral literature. Yeah. And it was actually Rudy and Naya that told me to write stories about home. Uh-huh. And so the story that I wrote was the one that my mother told me about the two children who turned into prairie dogs. <laughs> that was the, what I wrote. And then he helped me get it published. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, was. When I was, by then I was in college. I had already graduated from the university. I had a bachelor's degree and I decided I'd go back and take some writing courses. And I took that class with Rudy and Naya. So how did that feel to have that first story published and, and to have it be such a personal story of home and your family and, and something so rooted to you? Oh my God, it was it was amazing because here was something that I wrote mm-hmm. and in, it was put in a book and it was something that I had always dreamed about doing. And there it was mm-hmm. on the page and that just encouraged me and it gave me inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those three writers really inspired me. So when I saw that, um, it was just seen like, it was like something like you invented something. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. You invented something and it's there. And then people are going to make use of it or people are going to read it, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a story that's not mainstream. Mm-hmm. It's a story that came from my mother who got it from her great-grandmother. So it's a very old story. Mm-hmm. And just to have it on a page um, was just incredible. Wow, what a lovely. Did your did your mom get to read it or did she know about it? I think I did. I think I showed her that story. And um I don't remember what she said. <laughs> I don't. I just yeah, I did show it to her and I think she was very proud of me because my mother always had high expectations for me. Uh-huh. And um uh-huh. So I think that was part of what she raised in me just, you know, you she expected me to do things with my life and and mm-hmm. that was something that I feel like I had to live up to those expectations. Oh yeah. Do you think that was hard for her to, or was she proud of you? Like for you to do something, become a writer, right? Not just a writer, but a poet for heaven's sakes, Mm -hmm. you know, and in your community where that's something that was unusual, in fact, unprecedented. What was, what was that like? Well, my mom didn't know what I did. (laughs) (laughs) I told her I, you know, I was a graduate student. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I was taking classes and I'm taking literature classes and, you know, I explained that to her. But she didn't really know what that was. Mm-hmm. And one day um, when we were living in the Midwest, she came to visit and I was invited to do a talk at, in South Dakota. So we had to drive there from Omaha. So I asked her to come with me. Oh. So we went there and we spent the day with her and I gave my talk and then we drove back home and then on the way, she said, oh, that's what you do. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and so, I, you know, I told her, that's partly what I do. And my mother passed in 2002, a lot, a long time before I, you know, became the Poet Laureate and published a lot of my work. So she never mm-hmm. really got to see a lot of what I did, but I did show her some of the poems that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And she would read them and and she wouldn't say much about them but you know i think that she was always proud of what i did i think my mm-hmm. mother was like that she was a kind of mother that and like all the women in my lot in my in my family they were always you know the ones that were the sturdy women they were mm-hmm. strong they were independent so i was always surrounded by those kinds of women and they were my role models and then my mother always had stories too when I was growing up. So her and my grandmothers and my aunts and my father, everyone told stories mm-hmm. all the time, you know, wherever we were, you know, we'd go visit them. And, and I remember, I think we'd go to my grandmother or something and we'd go to visit and she'd say, uh, <laughs> that's a Navajo kind of a, a way of saying, Okay, tell me what your story is. <laughs> tell uh-huh. me the story. <laughs> and will you will you make that sound again? Uh, you know, that's it's not even a word. It's just <laughs> a sound that you make. Laura, I have to ask you, did you grow up speaking Navajo? A- Navajo is my first language. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I know there aren't so many native speakers around anymore. I was very fortunate and I'm very grateful to my parents because they taught me Navajo, yeah. but they also spoke English. Mm-hmm. So I learned two languages at home. I was bilingual when I went to school. So when we'd go to visit them, you know, 
we sit there and you listen very quietly again. And it's always has to do with listening. And mm-hmm. you don't interrupt when someone's telling a story. Mm-hmm. Um, you just encourage them along. You just say, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and they'll continue on. Uh-huh. And then when they're finished, then that's it. You know, then you, you're finished. But you're always saying, uh, uh-huh. all along the way. And so you listen for those cues of, of the listeners giving you these cues to continue on and they're listening. Mm-hmm. But that's how I grew up and, and I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how to go about doing that until I took the class with Rudy Anaya and he helped me get my work published. And then he invited me to do a poetry reading. I think uh-huh. I had three poems by then. <laughs> wow. And I did that. And it was so scary for me. Uh, because at the time, there was only Lucy Tapahanso who was also writing and publishing. She was getting her first book published. We got to know each other because we both lived in Albuquerque. And I just felt when I'd go to these poetry readings, I felt I was terrified. And I thought, who would really want to listen to what I have to say? You know, I just didn't have any confidence in myself. Mm-hmm. And it felt like I was naked <laughs> standing in front of an <laughs> oh, audience, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. That really scared me. But I knew I had to keep doing it because I liked writing. Mm-hmm. And I had seen that this performance of poetry or stories is part of the writing process. Mm-hmm. And I, I continued to do that. And um, yeah, so I, I once I got my foot in the door, I knew that's what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I feel like I have contributed to this body of literature, or what's called Indigenous American literature. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Emerging Form. If you're a paid subscriber, then you'll get a special bonus episode next week, where Laura will talk about writing for her granddaughter and how a hummingbird helped her to write a poem. And she's also going to give us a very special reading of Nala, her solo, a fabulous, transformative poem. And if you're not a paid subscriber yet, well, now is your chance to go to emergingform.substack.com to become a paid subscriber, and you'll get access to all of our bonus episodes and the warm feeling of knowing that you have helped Christy and me make this podcast sustainable. Thank you. I'm curious to know sort of what some of these the initial reactions to your work, you know, what what was that like? And was that something that, that sort of fueled you? Did it terrify you? Did it energize you? Maybe all of the above? Well, when I first wrote some poems, I showed it to a teacher of mine because I, I was had mentioned that I was writing some poems. And he read it and gave some comments to me, but I didn't feel like, you know, I, I had gotten enough support. So I kind of just put it away. Mm-hmm. And I was a closet poet for a long time. Um, but once I started writing things, I'd get mixed comments. Like I was taking this English class and I wrote this poem about a horned toad. And um, the students in my class who were all non-native were abhorred that I wrote about this little reptile. And actually... <laughs> The rep that little reptile is called a uh, grandfather because he's very old, mm-hmm. and I wrote it from a Navajo perspective, and I took it to class, and no one really liked that poem. So I, I sent it to a, another publication 
which was being edited by a Pueblo editor. She read it and she accepted it for an anthology she was putting together. So that taught me something about audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because the audience may not like what you're reading. And maybe it's because, for one thing, it's because they're, it's something they're unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. But I'm familiar with it. And that's what I wanted to do is write about what I know, what I was familiar with. So mm-hmm. um, it taught me something about an audience. And even now when I read some poems about the boarding school, sometimes my audience were, or non- Native, um, I can see, I can read that there's a sense of, of, um, I don't know, shame or, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and uh, you know, I can read that in, in mm-hmm. their response. But I, I can read the same poems to, say, uh, Navajo audience and they laugh. Uh-huh. You know, they get what I'm writing about because some of those works mm-hmm. that I wrote have humor in it. Yeah. And uh, the Navajo audience gets it, but the non Navajos. I have a totally different response to it. That's so interesting. So as the as the poet laureate of the Navajo Nation for some time now, um, I, I know that exposing younger people to Navajo voices and also um, just in general bringing forward more Indigenous voices has been important to you. Maybe just talk a little bit about what what that's been like for you to to encourage other people and yeah i think that's the road or the journey that i am on now mm-hmm. um is this place now where i'm in a position to support and to encourage younger emerging writers and i think i've been able to do that through um the Navajo Nation Poet Laureate, which I was given in 2015. Mm. And part of the duties of that is to do exactly that, to support younger, um, in this case, Navajo writers, because it's a mm. Navajo Nation Poet Laureate. We are the only tribe that has this. Interesting. But just at the beginning of the pandemic, I received an American Academy of Fellowship for Poet Laureates. Wow. And one of the things that I was asked to do was to come up with a program for my community. So I created this program called Poetry from Four Directions. Uh-huh. The original plan was to go out in person with other poets and do these poetry classes and workshops to students and teachers. But because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, we had to do it all online. So we did eventually get a chance to work with several schools online and work with younger students that were actually, most of them were still in junior high or high school. Mm-hmm. So it was myself and two other poets that did this. Um, I'm also on the uh, Indigenous Nations Poets uh, called INAPO. This is a new organization that was started by Kim Blaser, who's Anishinaabe, and she asked me to be on the board. So there are several of us that are on this board. And again, our mission is also to support Indigenous voices, you know, from the past and the present. Mm-hmm. This is the second year that we're going to have a retreat. Last year, we had it in Washington, D.C. during the time when Joy Harjo was finishing her poet laureateship. Mm-hmm. So we were there working with the Library of Congress. We had readings, we had workshops. 
for these younger writers from all over the U.S. and even from around the uh, South Pacific, uh, some of the South Pacific islands. So that was really, I think this is a new thing that we're doing because we have a lot of writers now, as I mentioned, lots of poets. And it's really great to see all these voices and to encourage these younger writers to do what they're doing, Mm -hmm. to write about what they want to write about, whether it's about their family or their language and community. You know, this is also important for us because we were invisible for so long. Mm -hmm. Our books did not touch a bookshelf (laughs) in the libraries, but now there are. And many of these younger writers are really great. They're fantastic. They're uh, winning awards for their writing. And this is something that was never done um, before. Mm-hmm. So Inapo is doing that. And then I'm also on the American Writers Programs, AWP, mm-hmm. as a board member. And I also am in a position now to help move forward um, younger writers, whether they're Native or non-Native. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's very s- satisfactory to me as well. So those are the things I think are very important now in my stage of life now is to give back to my community, to support younger writers and to, you know, help them because I certainly did not get that when I was growing up. Yeah. But I saw what was missing, like many of us did, you know, we saw what was missing and now we're in a position to help change that. Absolutely. So I think I had so many other things I was hoping we could talk about, but I think this will be our last question. And it's this. If I could give you a magic wand right now, Laura, and you could use it to build or change or do anything <laughs> at all with the National Poetry Community, just snap, what what would it be? How What could you do with that magic wand? I was thinking about that question, you know, and I thought, what would I do? As poetry has such... It's magical, it's mysterious, it's mm. organic, it's it's part of our human experience. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who needs poetry? You know, besides us, you know, humans need poetry. Yeah. And I thought, how can poetry be used to help create a community so there's less divisiveness in our country? Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, this is just throwing stuff way out. <laughs> Maybe uh, there should be some poetry meetings during the Senate meetings or you know, in the government, you know. I love that idea. Uh, <laughs> there should be some poetry in the hallways of justice, you know. There should mm-hmm. be poetry readings, you know, in these high offices, you know. I know there's their poetry is read once at the inauguration of the president, but right. you know, why can't we have more poetry? And why can't we celebrate that? I like that. Let's just go ahead and do that. I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we got that accomplished, that would be a real. Yeah. <laughs> <That'd be amazing. laughs> uh, I wish I had a real magic wand to give you, Laura. But I would be interested in what your magic wand is. <gasps> oh gosh, for a poetry community, what we could do with it? Yes. Gosh, I didn't think about it, but on on the spot. <laughs> I guess it would be to um, to really value and to create a format that, that valued all voices more equally. I, I guess I'm thinking about the difference between the like an open mic where you have one person up with a microphone 
versus the talking gorge circles that I, we like to do over here based on Dolores LaChapelle's work. And and it just makes it a lot more equal so that, that there's, like you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, more listening, mm-hmm. right? I guess I'd like us all to sit around and go, oh, <laughs> And and can and encourage everyone else and until everyone just to create that bigger space for more voices and less mm-hmm. um less of a I'm I'm just talking down to you and more of a we're all in this together feeling. Yeah, I agree with that because um one of the things that I wanted to do was to have um Navajo poetry visible among the Navajo people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have it like on wheels. So there's a transit system where, you know, maybe mm. a line from one of the Navajo poets would be in the bus itself. And I really wanted to do that. I tried to work on that, but that didn't go anywhere. Mm. Um, because I don't think a lot of our Navajo people know who our writers and poets are and mm-hmm. what they're doing. And I just felt like this is something poetry it should be for everyone and being the Navajo Nation Poet Laureate, I wanted my community to see how language continues to be so important, whether it's Navajo or English, and yeah. to see those words in public places, and to see you know people from their own community writing these words. Mm-hmm. I just thought that would be a magical thing. That oh, would yeah. be my other wand. That's what I would do with the other wave of my wand. All right, you, you've got it. I, it just yeah. so happens. I've got unlimited wands. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm going to keep handing them to you, friend, and you keep making good things happen. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Laura. That was so fun. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Mm